this will make a month. We've been preaching from the series Forward Faith. We talked a lot about it. What is faith? We defined it as an inner material substance that becomes the evidence of things hoped for. I hope you've got that definition. I've, I've shared it with you every week. Some people are still confused by it. If, I, if, if you don't get it from this, I can't make it any clearer. Faith is an, it's a substance. It's a thing. It's an inside, inner material substance uh, that becomes the evidence of things hoped for. That substance is produced. It is manufactured by God. And God's word is the source of faith and hope. And then we also talked about how faith and hope are fused together, that they are tied together. Because if hope is a destination, I'm hoping to get there in my life, or I'm hoping to receive that in my life. I'm dreaming to get to that place or in that state in my life. If hope is the destination, then faith becomes the bridge to get you there. So hope is very important because without hope, faith is a bridge to nowhere. We must become in the age that we are living in ever more familiar with our Bibles. We, we must become uh, people that are learned in the scriptures. We must be able to look at the scriptures, not just individually, but collectively as a whole and see the movement of God from the Old Testament all the way into the new. There are famous scriptures that we can all quote. There are beautiful tapestries that have been woven into our lives by mentors and parents and pastors of old that have put things into our spirits, but the ultimate job of becoming literate in the word of the Lord is sadly up to each and every one of us as an individual. No preacher, regardless of his talent or his prolific ability, can make you literate in the scripture better than you can when you decide to open the word of the Lord and begin to study it faithfully and begin to hide its principles and its concepts in your heart. I want to draw your attention to an often neglected grouping of biblical books. First of all, the Old Testament is separated in five divisions. There's five divisions of your Old Testament. Number one is the Pentateuch. Number two is the historicity of Israel. Number three is the poetic books like Psalms and, and uh, Proverbs and uh, the Song of Solomon. And then you have the major prophets. Uh, major prophets are large books, often with messianic prophecies included. And then you have the minor prophets, not because they were any less anointed or of any less stature. It's just because most of their books are small. Now, much of the writing of the minor prophets was given to encourage God's people during their time of Babylonian captivity. The nation of Israel belonged to God. It is no question that they were God's people. But it's possible to be something. False idols when they would forget who they were in their covenant relationship with God, one of the ways that God would discipline them as a faithful father is he would allow their enemies to overwhelm them. 
That means that they won or they lost battles based off their relationship with God. I didn't say they won or they lost salvation because salvation is secure in God. But they won or they lost battles based on the health of their relationship with God. That was true for them and it is true for us. The worst time to go through a battle is when you're in a dark spiritual place, in a dark spiritual backslidden condition. And the Babylonian Empire invaded the nation of Israel at a time where Israel had forgotten who they were. They had backslidden. They had turned away from the worship of the one true God and had preferred rather the worship of idols. Other influences had come in and taken their heart and taken their love and their affection and their worship away from God. And they were living in their filth and their mess. And as a result, when the Babylonians came in, God dropped the hedge of protection and allowed their enemies to overwhelm them and not just overwhelm them. They came in and burned their their temple to the ground. They burned the temple that Solomon had built in all of its architectural beauty and majesty. They burned it to the ground. And then they enslaved the people and drug them out of Israel and back to Babylon and made them their prisoners. Once in exile, the people of God begin to lose hope of deliverance. So God, in his faithfulness, began to raise up a remnant of people who still possessed hope in God's promise and faith in God's word. Enter the prophet Daniel. You must understand that the prophet Daniel is famous for his uh, long-reaching and long-viewing eye prophetically. But he only came to prominence because of what God did with him during the Babylonian exile. Daniel learned to pray, praise, and worship as a prisoner in a strange land. When they took the people of Israel into Babylon, they hung their harps and their instruments by the willow trees and they began to weep. And they said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Or how can we praise in the condition of being prisoners over in this mess in Babylon? But Daniel said, y'all can break your harps if you want to. But I've learned that if I'm going to ever make it through life, I gotta be able to praise God in time of peace. I got to be able to praise God in times of war. I got to be able to praise God when everything is going right. And I've got to be able to praise God when everything is going wrong. I got to be able to praise God as a free man in my own nation. And I got to be able to praise God as a prisoner. So Daniel praised. Daniel worshiped. But what really concerned the enemy is that Daniel prayed. It's hard to pray in a tough place. It's hard to pray when your life is up under attack. It's hard to muster the hope and the faith to continue praying when nothing on the outside looks like it's turning out, like you believed God would lead you into your future. But he prayed anyway. Three times a day, morning, noon, and night. And he didn't just pray soft, little, quiet, sweet, pablum prayers. The Bible said he opened up his window and his neighbors could hear him praying and calling on God. People walking by could hear him praying and calling on God. And there was something so powerful about his prayer that his prayer started to disturb the enemy. Think about it. Babylon is the one in power. 
Daniel is the one in prison, and yet the prisoner's prayers are affecting the people who are in power. So they came and they made a decree, Daniel, if you don't stop praying, we're going to take your tail and throw you in the lion's den. Daniel said, do whatever you got to do. It wasn't the safety or the guarantees of men that have kept me this long. If you need to throw me to the lions, my God's able to deliver me. But even if he doesn't, I ain't going to stop. So he kept on praying and he left the window open and they came in and arrested him and they took him and they threw him to the lions. But something funny happened. The lions lost their appetite, laid over on Daniel all night to keep him warm and he was alive and kicking in the morning. Now, now you've heard about Daniel in the lion's den, but you may not have known that it was in the context of the Babylonian exile. And you may not have known that God performed that one miracle so that all the other prisoners that Daniel was exiled with that were feeling hopeless because of their situation, they would look at Daniel alive in the morning after spending the night with lions. If God could still do that for Daniel, maybe things aren't as hopeless as we thought. Shutting the mouths of the lions was to infuse the other exiles, the other prisoners with hope. Because what good would it do for God to send them a word or send them a prophecy? All the word does is produce faith. But if you don't have hope, faith is a bridge to nowhere. So before he started preaching to them and prophesying to them, he closed the mouth of the lions and said, See, even in a strange land, I can still work miracles. Then Daniel's three friends... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Oh, I'm sorry. You would have to know the Bible real good to know who I'm talking about. Their names were changed and they became famous in Sunday school as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and the king told them, when you hear the music play and you bow down and you worship my statue. Let me frame it another way. The government said, you're going to worship like we say you're going to worship. We're making it legal and we're making it a law. And if you don't obey what we say, we'll throw you in the fiery furnace. They said, oh, king, we have no reason to listen to you in this matter. The God we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But they took a page out of Daniel's book and they said, but... Oh, that's a big old butt right there. God is able to deliver us. Oh, you got to have a butt way down in your spirit when the enemy starts fighting you. Push somebody and say, do you have a butt? Our God is a, oh, I feel like preaching. Our God is a, oh, oh our God. God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But 
Even if he doesn't, play all the music you want. I ain't bowing down to your image. I ain't giving you my knee. My knee belongs to God. Now, those of you that are familiar with the story, you're caught up in all of the ways the story has normally been presented to you. But you got to remember all the other exiles that were feeling hopeless had to hear those three Hebrew boys say that. And then they had to watch as they heated the furnace up seven times hotter than it normally was and then threw them in the fire. And they said, we throw three of them in the fire. There's four walking around. And their hair ain't singed. Their clothes ain't burnt up. And they don't even smell like smoke. In fact, one of them in the fire looks like the Son of God. What's going on in here? And it was a great deliverance for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it wasn't just for them. It was for the hope of all of the prisoners watching. God's trying to build some hope in a hopeless people. God knew that if the people looked at what he did for Daniel in the lion's den and what he did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, that they would deduce if it worked for them. Sometimes God will let you go into a lion's den. And it's not even really about you. He'll let you go into a lion's den, keep you all through the night, and then bring you out. So your experience encourages somebody else around you. Oh, he'll let you go through a fiery trial, a fiery furnace, a hard pot place just to bring you out of it and encourage those in your community that never would have come to church, never would have read a Bible, never would have sang a song. But when they looked at your life, God started preaching a message with your sickness that you overcame, with the anxiety and depression that you walked out of, with the poverty that you climbed up out of. God is preaching up. What's God doing? Building hope. So God continues using their lives. And after 70 years from the first prophecy, God raised up a Babylonian king by the name of Cyrus and God revealed himself to him. In the same way that God told Pharaoh, let my people go. Where Pharaoh said no, Cyrus said, yes, I will let your people go. And then God instructed Cyrus on how to let them go and what the process should be. Cyrus came to the Jewish people and he said, I want you to begin to gather together and study the law of Moses. He said, I'm going to set you free, and I want you to return to your homeland, and I want you to rebuild your temple that we burned down. But first, you need to gather together and study your faith and your culture, because 70 years of captivity in Babylon has made you forget who you are. When Cyrus made this announcement, the Jewish people were scattered 
across 120 provinces of Babylon. So for convenience, Cyrus built localized centers for the law of Moses to be taught. And that's where the concept of the synagogue first came from. The concept of the synagogue, you will not find it in the law of Moses because God never intended for it. But for convenience sake, Cyrus was trying to do a, a right thing, but he went about it the wrong way. For convenience sake, instead of building one large gathering place, he built 120 small gathering places. But the problem is, if you're going to have a gathering place for people to learn the word of God, you have to have at least one qualified teacher or preacher in each place to make sure that what the people are learning is correct. And unfortunately, there were not enough qualified teachers to fill every synagogue. So many of them were filled by spiritual babies who were unable to accurately explain and teach the word of the Lord. And so this is where the tradition, the evil tradition of the Pharisees came from. Because each localized sinner didn't have any confidence in their teachers and their teachers were totally immature concerning the word. So they raised up regional Pharisees. The Pharisee was never a concept in the old covenant that God gave to Moses. It was never a part of the temple worship. Temple worship was conducted and led by a priest. The Pharisees were a tradition that was born in a place of crisis that carried on after their deliverance. Be careful what you take with you out of crisis into your times of deliverance. It may crucify future revelation that God gives you. So the concept of the Pharisee was born. And because they were not anointed men of God, anointed to speak the word of truth, anointed to reveal what the scripture means in its context, they begin polluting the word of God with socialized agendas and political ideologies to the point where you, when you went to church, you didn't know if you were going to a social club or a political rally. They let all this stuff infiltrate, and instead of getting truth, they got treachery. Anytime you talk more about politics than you do about Jesus, that's not truth, that's treachery. Anytime you talk more about social issues than you do about the blood of the lamb, that is not truth, that is treachery. You can talk about that stuff outside the house of God, but when you come into the house of God, you have stepped inside a different kingdom, ruled by a different law, governed by one word, one God, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and whatever you mix it with, you pollute it. And so they were teaching the word, but not everybody with two feet, a shirt on, a microphone, and a Bible in his hand is a preacher. So they were teaching, but the teaching was not profitable. And the people began to fall into delusion. So God raised up four reformers at the same time. Four reformers together. Different gifts, different aim, but the same vision. You will recognize them as minor prophets. Ezra, Nehemiah, 
Haggai, and Zechariah. Let's deal with Ezra first. Ezra reestablished the teaching of the word of God in context so that the people listening could understand. And he did it in such a way that nobody ever wanted to hear one of the Pharisee boy preachers ever again after experiencing the quality teaching ministry of Ezra. And he did a few more things. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8 verses. We'll start at verse 4. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 4. Now, you're going to see something you, you, for the first time in Scripture. Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood. In the synagogues, they all stood on the same level. Um, how offensive do I want to be? In the synagogues, the teacher and the student all stood on the same level. The shepherd and the sheep all stood on the same level because the truth of the matter was the shepherd was one of the sheep, had no qualifications to be a shepherd, had no anointing to be a shepherd, had no elevation and no appointment by God to be a shepherd. So he was on the same level as the sheep in terms of his knowledge and empowerment from God, you see. When Ezra gets up to teach for the first time in scripture, we see him build a platform. We see him build a pulpit. We see him start to construct for the first time something like what we see today in church. Where somebody that is anointed and empowered by God, and it is bore witness to that fact by the congregation, comes together and dons a sacred desk or a platform, an elevated position given by God, not man, for the purpose of teaching his people his word and speaking for God to your ear. Ezra built a platform. Now, look at, uh, look at verse 5. Ezra opened the book. If you're watching me online, some of y'all that call me and, and want to talk sermons and want to talk church strategy, here's the first church strategy. Open the book. I watch some of your messages and I turn it off in disgust because you spend about 45 minutes talking, but you never crack open the book. Read all the self-help you want to. It's good and it has its place. But if you want to have God, you have got to open the book. Book. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. In other words, this wasn't any private interpretation. He put it up where they can see it. I don't need your ministry if you won't let me see what the book says. I don't need your ministry if you always want to twist what the revelation is and tell me some kind of private interpretation. I need your ministry where you can read it and I can see it. He opened the book in the sight of all the people and was standing above the people, not because he was better than them, but because God had placed him in that position so that God could speak to them through him. But Ezra noticed something when he started speaking. They all did what Pastor Jeff and Pastor David and Pastor Sean are doing right now. When he started speaking, they stood up. Verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and then all the people answered. This is the first time we're seeing congregational, conversational worship. That means Ezra started preaching. 
And then the crowd started preaching. Ezra started hollering, and then the crowd started hollering. Ezra started saying, blessed be the great God. And the crowd started saying, amen, Ezra. You better preach, preacher. You better talk about that great God of ours. Amen. Verse, verse 7, verse 7, verse 8, verse 8. So they read distinctly. I don't even have time. They read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense. That's what a preacher does. You can read the same scripture verse 45 times and you come in and hear your pastor read it and give the sense and all of a sudden you stand up and say, I got it. I got it now. I didn't understand it before, but I got it now. That's what it means. It gave the, the sense and helped them to understand And so the Bible said from, from daylight to noon, this happened. They was in a long service. And every time he released a word that the people understood, the people stood up and started hollering at him. And he stumbled. Ezra stumbles upon a revelation that would not be further extrapolated until the apostle Paul came to walk on the earth. Ezra stumbles on this revelation. Their temple had been burned down 70 years before. You remember? Okay. What was, put your Bible student hat on for a minute. What was the crown jewel of the temple? Huh? You're right. Say it loud so everybody else get it. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant at the top of it the most holy area was the mercy seat where the blood is applied and it was covered by two angels face to face with their wings touching each other. And at that spot, amidst the angels' wings was where God's glory began to dwell. But they burned the temple down. Who knows what happened to the ark? But Ezra discovered something when for the first time a pulpit was built and he began to stand here in front of the people and Ezra and the people were face to face. He realized there's something about being face to face. That's what the angels do in heaven. They stand face to face and they cry one to another, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Then they turn to some other angels face to face and cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And Ezra realized, oh my God, because the scripture said as he kept on preaching and the people kept hollering that the glory of the Lord started to fill the place, that an intensity and a power started to fill the place. What was it? They didn't have the angel wings. They didn't have the ark. It was that. God has always dwelt in the middle of the conversation. That when you come to church, there should always be a conversation. That when you come to church, it's not a monologue from me to you. It's a dialogue between us together. That when I say holy, you say holy. When I say is the Lord, you say is the Lord. There's a conversation and the glory grows. 
Oh, that's why you ought never come to church like a cat got your tongue. You ought never come to church and be silent because the more you begin to respond and the more I begin to preach, there's a glory in the atmosphere. I wish somebody would get out their conversation right now and fill this place with praise. Fill this place with praise. Holy! I said holy! I said holy! Is the Lord God Almighty? Is He holy? I said, Is He holy? Is He holy? There's something happening right now in the midst of our face to face conversation. There's something shifting in the atmosphere right now. Oh, yes. Has he been good to you? Has he been merciful to you? Has he been kind to you? Have you seen him move for you? Holy, holy, holy. So, God used the lion's den with Daniel, the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to build hope. Now that hope has been established, what's the next thing we need? Faith. So Daniel and the three Hebrew boys got everybody's hopes up. If God can do that for you, what can he do for me? Now Ezra comes on the scene to preach the word which will produce and see now because of the hope previously established we ain't got a bridge to nowhere we've got a bridge to deliverance and Ezra preached so hard that the uh, the uh, the, uh, the somonier you know what a somonye is? No? Raise your hand if you know what a somonye is. One, two, three. Oh, y'all gonna learn something today. At really nice restaurants, they know most people don't know nothing about wine. They don't know what to pair with it. Should I eat it with chicken or fish or steak? So really nice restaurants employ a wine expert called a sommelier. And the sommelier tests every wine in the restaurant to see which wines go with what pairings on the menu. Nehemiah was a sommelier. He was the wine bearer and the cup bearer for Cyrus. 
he poured Cyrus wine and he tasted it, not only to see what would go good with the king's meal, but he also tasted it to make sure that no one had poisoned the cup of the king. Nehemiah's just chilling with his sommelier self. But after that word that Ezra preached, oh, I said after that word that Ezra preached, and after that glory that built in the room, God got a hold of the king and said, let Nehemiah go right now back to Israel and let him start rebuilding the walls of the city that had been torn down. So we transitioned from one minor prophet, Ezra, to a new one, Nehemiah. Nehemiah's job is not so much to prophesy as it is to rebuild what had been torn down. And I want to tell you, it's harder to rebuild than it is to build. Because when you have to rebuild something that's been torn down, everybody's always going to be comparing the new construction to the old construction that was torn down. While Nehemiah is trying to build the wall, the enemy sends critics to attack him. They say, you're never going to be able to build these walls back up. You're never going to be able to make them as strong as Solomon did. You're never going to be able to make this city as glorious as David did. What are you doing building up these broken down walls? We're just going to knock them over again. And they kept on criticizing him. But the Bible said, in spite of their criticism, Nehemiah kept on building. And there's some people in this room, God has called you this year to build some things. Maybe you got to build in your family or build in your business or build up your children or build up your future. And I want to tell you, anytime you start building something at the command of God, there will always be critics sent by the enemy to stand underneath you and criticize what you're building. But the Bible says Nehemiah stayed on the wall. Push somebody Push them real good. No, push somebody. Push them real good. Say, stay on the wall. Stay on the wall. I don't care what they say. I don't care what they post. I don't care if they're in your own family. Stay on So, Pastor Jeff, when the criticism couldn't make him come down, I said when, when the criticism couldn't bring him down, they sent enemies to attack him, thinking he'll put down his hammer and he'll go get some armor to defend himself. That's when... Nehemiah came out to the wall with a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. And he climbed up the wall and he would build a while and then fight a while and then build a while and then fight a while to all the people up under attack in this season. I don't know where the attack has been fighting you, but I want to tell you the word of the Lord. It is not time to just defend yourself and go into fight mode only. You got to build a while and then fight a while. You got to build what oh, my preacher too. You got to build a while and then fight a while. Build a while and then fight a while. I said build a while. 
That's somebody's word. That's worth you coming to church this morning. I don't know who it's for. Build a while. Fight a while. Build a while. Fight a build a while. Build a while. Fight a while. Nehemiah finished the wall. God said, now it's time to start construction on the temple. So with the wall behind him, he has to turn his faith forward. Now, Solomon is the richest man ever recorded in scripture. And Solomon's the one that built the last time with the biggest bank account in the history of scripture. Nehemiah ain't got nothing. He ain't got the craftsmen. Solomon could hire the best in the world. He ain't got the materials. Solomon could import the best in the world. Solomon brought in the cedars of Lebanon and precious stones from Africa. Why? Because he could afford to. Nehemiah has got to try to build the temple of the Lord without the resources he needs to compare the new one. And that's why some of you are struggling right now. It's not that God's not moving. It's not that God's not with you. You're trying to compare what you're building now with a former season that God is through with. And you're gauging your success now based off the past that is over. You're gauging the success of your marriage now based off that relationship you used to have three or four people ago that is over. I knew that would go over real, 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 real big. And so Nehemiah starts building, using what he can. And the Bible says that when the people, they had already been given hope. They had already been given faith. But when they came out to look at what Nehemiah was building, they started to weep. Because they remembered the temple in the former glory. And they said the glory of this temple will never be like it was back then. That's why some of you can't move forward in the Lord in this season because you're stuck in what your relationship with the Lord was. And that's when old prophet Haggai stood up. They called him the leather leg prophet because the people used to hate his messages so much they would beat him with rods while he preached and he'd stand there, take it, and keep preaching. Haggai stood up and he said, thus says the Lord, the glory of this latter house. Oh, I wish I had a church that read the Bible. 
the glory of this latter house shall be greater than the glory of the former house. What glory? Because it wasn't going to be a more excellently constructed architectural gym. God was saying, whatever the difference is between the structures, my spirit is going to make it up. I ain't closing. Don't go soft, Obi. I said, whatever the difference is between what you were comparing what this next thing is to, my glory and my spirit will make the difference up. He said, the glory of the latter house shall be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this house, in this house, uh, you don't hear me, I'm prophesying, in this house, there shall be glory and I will bless you from this day forward. That's Haggai chapter 2 verse 19. And when they said, when the people heard Haggai's prophecy, they didn't like Haggai anyway. You know, they beat him with rods. When they heard his prophecy, they said, how? How is the glory of this latter house going to be greater than the former house? And Haggai sat down and Zechariah stood up. You got to know your Bible, ladies and gentlemen. You got to know your Bible. When Haggai sat down when they asked how, Zechariah stood up and said, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And they started listing all of the reasons why they couldn't continue. And he said to every mountain of adversity in front of you, I say grace, grace. And then... He calls out to them out of his spirit and he speaks the words of my text. All we've been doing this entire sermon is just walking up the steps of context to the text so I can actually say the text to you in the way it was meant to be said. After Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai had had their work, and the people said, how? Zechariah says, not by might, not by power, by my spirit, says the Lord. Grace, grace to all of your affliction. And then he says, return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Because of the blood covenant, because of the blood covenant, today I declare, God is going to give you Double. Put up Zechariah chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. This is what he said to the people who were stupefied at what was being prophesied that God was going to do. As for you also. Oh, I want to preach just one more time, God. Give me the strength to do it one more time. As for you also. Because of the blood of your covenant. That's important. 
If you're tired, leave now because I want to preach to hungry people. Because of the blood of your covenant, I'm going to set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Verse 12. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today, I declare that I will restore. I'm going to give you double everything you lost in your affliction. I'm going to give you double everything you lost while your heart was broken or your mind was up under siege. I'm going to give you double everything that was taken from you by the enemy. I'm going to give you double everything that was stolen. I'm going to give you. Now, why? Why? Why is he going to give them double? Not because they deserved it. It was their behavior, poor choices, and poor morals that got them into this mess. He's not going to give it to them because they deserve it. He said in the text why he was going to do it. Because of the blood covenant. Wait a second. What was their blood covenant? God had told Moses when sin is committed among the people at Passover and at, ta at Tabernacles during the Day of Atonement, I want you to bring me a lamb without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. And if the priest offers a lamb in the place of the sinful person, I'll take the sins that the person committed and put them on the lamb and the innocence of the lamb and put it on the people. That was the blood covenant. <coughs> God's saying, <coughs> I think so much of the blood of animals that I'm going to remove you from this prison. I'm going to take you out of this waterless pit of affliction you've been in and I'm going to give you double everything you lost. If God would do that because he honored a blood covenant that was made with animals blood, how much more Will God honor a blood covenant that was made with the life of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ? I came to tell you, you can declare covenant mercy, covenant protection, covenant blessing, covenant mercy, covenant insurance, covenant restoration, because God honors the blood because God honors the blood. Because God honors the blood that Jesus shed. But then he says, but you got to return to that stronghold as prisoners of hope. In other words, you've allowed some of the trials in life and some of the surroundings that you've been looking at to make you hopeless. And that's true for them. And it's true for some of you. You've allowed the attack, the affliction, the difficulty, the stress, the pressure, the marriage, the finances, the kids, the health, whatever it is, you've allowed it to push you into a waterless, hopeless pit. 
and you've been coming to church and I've been preaching faith and it ain't helping you because without hope, faith is a bridge. So God sent me here to tell you it's time to get your hopes up again. God sent me in here and he sent you in here for us to have a face-to-face -face conversation so I can tell you that because of the blood covenant, God is going to remember you. Because of the blood covenant, God is going to heal you. Because of the blood covenant, God is going to deliver you. Because of the blood covenant, God is going to restore you. Because of the blood covenant, God is going to bring you out of this. Because of the blood covenant, he's going to give you double. He's going to give you double. Oh, you can't hang with me. He's going to give you double. But you got to be a prisoner. Of hope. Locked up, they won't let me out. Locked up, they won't let me out. I want to be a prisoner of hope for the rest of my life. I don't ever want to go free. Hope in God. Hope in God. I ain't got nothing else to tell you. Hope in God. Hope in God. I'll say it till I don't have a voice to say it. Hope in God. I wish I had 20 people. Oh, I wish I had 20 people that were climbing up the ladder of hope that didn't mind giving God just one more praise, just one more shout, just one more dance. Just one more clap. Oh, yes. I'm a prisoner.
Excuse me. Something's been happening in the middle of our conversation. I, I feel something changing in the, in the middle, in between our face to face. The glory of the Lord is here. Pastor, Pastor, I hear what you're saying, but I'm hurting so bad right now. Hope in God. Pastor, things are so difficult in my marriage right now. I feel like my family is hanging on by a thread. I don't know what to do with it. Hope in God. Pastor, they found something in my body at the doctor's office. I don't know how to move forward or what to do. Hope in God. Pastor, my mind is up under siege. I'm depressed. I'm so full of anxiety. I'm hurting so bad. 
and I don't know what to hope in God. And as for you also, because of the blood covenant, I will deliver you from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. I will give you double. Christian world, he's going to give you double. He's going to give you double. Oh, he's going to give you double. 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 Can you, can you press, can you press pause on your pain for 10 seconds real quick? Can you just press pause on the fear and anxiety and depression? Can you press pause on what's waiting for you when you get out and get in your car? Can you press pause for just a second and look forward in the future and imagine what your life would be like if it was doubled? If you had double the strength that you have now, if you had double the joy that you had now, if you had double the faith that you have now, if you had double the money that you have now, if you had double the homes that you have now, you was living in one and renting one out to somebody else paying you rent. If you had double the credit score that you have now, if you had double the energy and vitality that you have right now, if the communication in your house was double effective what it is right now. If the intimacy was double than what it is right now, my God, what would it be like? What? No, don't look around. Don't look at me. Will you close your eyes and tilt your head back? Can you see you if God gave you double? Double the peace, double the healing. Not only did he fix that thing that you're really praying about, he, he fixed that little nagging thing too you didn't even think to ask him for. Double! You ain't closing your eyes. You ain't imagining it. Step out of service for just one second. What would it look like? What would it feel like? If your business doubled, what would it feel like if your paycheck doubled? What would it feel like? I'm prophesying whether you believe it or not. What would it feel like if the opportunities doubled? What would it feel like if you had to become selective on what you did because you got more options than you have time? As for you also, because of the blood covenant, I will deliver you from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. And even today, 
high even today glory to God somebody's word right there even today things start to to double I didn't take you through some pablum or some sermon I pulled out of a book. I took you through the scripture. I showed you the minor prophets that led up to the context of this prophecy. I showed you the historical application for the past and the relevant application for today. Whether you know it or not, you are standing up under what just happens to be a word from the Lord through me to you. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today, says the word of the Lord, even today. This ain't a prophecy from Jason, it's from the Bible, Zechariah chapter 9. Even today, I, I'm gonna double you. He's gonna double you, and the process starts today. He's going to double you. And the process starts today. May the blessing of the word of the Lord lay upon you. May it soak into your spirit. And Father, in the name of Jesus, we stand as prisoners of hope. Never let us out of it. Keep the cage locked so that no matter what we face or what we go through, we're stuck in hope, trapped in hope in belief and expectation that you're the God that never changes, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and everything in between. And what you did is what you do. And what you were is what you are. And today we receive your blessing and your strength and your double that falls upon prisoners of hope. Give God a praise all over the house.